I was in a, in, a, in a situation which is pretty much was what we now call coercive control. You know, I had no control over my life, career or anything. And I really got free of it. And I was so happy I was free of it. I said, I would, if I never go on stage again, I'll be fine. But of course, you know, 2012, just to paint a picture, my career is gone. I have no contracts. I have no work anywhere. I'm broke. And I literally moved home with my to my parents at 31 years of age. Someone had said to me, which is a phrase encapsulated, was you were the perfect candidate for a manipulation or being exploited in some way. Yeah. I'm also, I see in my 20s, I'm in the closet, so you're completely vulnerable. Like I managed to come out of the worst person that I could possibly come out to. So then the, the secret becomes the controlling mechanism and you'd be destroyed, blah, blah, blah. So the minute I came out, that that was really the beginning for me because I was, I was finally starting to come free because the, uh, the bully was losing control. Oliver Callan is one of the most prolific and well-loved Irish humorists of the last 20 years. From the stage to radio to TV, this man has made it his business to skewer the biggest names in Irish life and his audience absolutely adore him for it. This month is the return of his RTE TV show Callan Kicks in a historical format that I'll let him explain together with an ensemble of some of the funniest feckers in the country, including our friend Dermot Whelan, Oliver Callan is on form and looking back at the checkered history of our country. I had the chance to sit down and talk to him for this episode, but as always, the upcoming show is just the jumping off point. We get into his first ever gig at the tender age of 16 for a talent search run by Pat Kenny. The real story behind his run-in with Paul Galvin, the abusive relationship that almost cost him everything, and the art of creating his impressions. My plan was to go back to Dublin this weekend to do two shows in the Laughter Lounge and meet up for a run in the Phoenix Park with the club members of Irishman Running Abroad. But due to circumstances beyond my control, I'm sad to say we've had to pull that trip. Right now, Sonia and I are working on rescheduling and creating a much bigger event in April. To hear about it first, get exclusive tickets, content and, of course, access to XL episodes of all of our shows each week. Why not sign up for Irishman Abroad Premium on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they're going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Johnny Three 
Oliver Callan, it's fantastic to have you on Irishman Abroad at last. Callan Kicks the Years is a six part new TV series. <sighs> and you're saying here or they're saying, let's say, that it's unlike any comedy ever made in Ireland, which is is a bold statement to, to lead with. But, but I love the idea. Like, I honestly, I completely loved the idea the second I heard about this uh, romp through the last hundred years since 1921 <laughs> using your sketches and kind of satirical documentary. When did you decide to go this route and did it have anything to do with the news right now being so feckin' bleak? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a show myself and James Cotter uh, who's the series director and he he was Republic of Telly for years and years and he's done all the TV stuff that Blind Boy mm-hmm. has done over the years and um, we wanted to make this show but we never really found the right time place to do it and we kind of pitched it and I suppose it would have looked a bit odd just kind of floating every time we pitched it or tea just let's and it was kind of more to do around the Taoiseach uh, various Taoiseachs we've had or Taoiseachs as we like to call it to get it nicely wrong to wind up some Gwail girls <laughs> and um it sort of happens by accident because in lockdown we pitched, you know, 2020 is the most insane year of our certain in living memory. And if we don't do a kind of a comedy review of this year, when would it ever be done? But we didn't think they'd do it because we assumed every production house that had been shut down for the whole year was obviously clamoring to make shows. But it turned out no else wanted to make uh, TV in level five lockdown except myself <laughs> and James Goddard. So we did basically a spoof news review of 2020, which went out on the 30th of December last year. And that was the night they announced that Christmas, the meaningful Christmas had failed and that we have to shut everything down and we don't know how long. And it was an extremely grim night. So our audience was literally captive. Mm. And fortunately, we made a show that they liked because it was, you know, sending up the year. There was Golf Gate. There was everything that went with um, Leo Vradker's increasingly manic uh, speeches to the nation. And then all the, all the fear and fall just setting itself on fire. The minute it got back into power and uh, it just seemed to work. And then we were able to kind of go, you know, let's do a series. And it, we're into a very uh, severe period of centenaries, uh, the difficult centenaries because the 1916 rising went on, went so very well. Nobody even noticed the 100th anniversary of the doll. Um, women's rights um, vote and so on hmm. uh, got rightly celebrated. So this is the tricky one where you get into the treaty, which is where everything starts to fall apart in terms <laughs> of even discussing it 100 years later. So we said, let's just do 100 years and we'll start at the treaty and we'll work all our way. and We'll take all the big kind of moments, challenges of 100 years that lend themselves well to comedy, whether it's um, show bands, Charlie Hawhey, emigration, moving statues, you know, feminism's fight for a bit of attention in an extremely masculine Ireland. The fact that we continually try to prevent progress from the outside world at every turn, you know, we throw the kitchen sink of it, sink at it, whether it's a Pope's visit, you know, we do everything, Eucharistic Congress, everything we've tried to throw at it. And it actually has worked and bring it right up to the present day. In and around, I would say, Repeal the Eighth is kind of our, our end point for this series. And we, it's six episodes. And, and that's, that's what we set out to do. So I do feel it's like uh, any other comedy that's been made because it's it's quite a broad stroke of history. But no comedy could be made like this because we know much more about those 100 years than we 
than we have mm. had previously. Not least the fact the uh, mother and baby homes report, which only came out this year. Is that, yeah, I know we, we did Catherine Corliss on just two yeah. weeks ago. I mean, again, that's you know some dark, dark stuff. And I, but I had a kind of a eureka moment reading Derek Scally's book, which okay. essentially you yeah. know stems from that. It's called "The Best Catholics in the World," and I just love the uh, the sarcasm of the of the topic. It's just the meaning, the, the several layers of meaning on the on the title of the book. And I was one of these people who kind of it would have sounded like the the largely lefty view that no, the state and the church, you know, repress the people did this terrible thing and they should pay for it and you know everyone else it was forced upon the people and this book because Derek Scally has been in Germany for years and years and he's kind of seen how the Germans have dealt with their history and now he says that dealt with the the Nazi era and World War II extremely well because they pretty much come up to you and apologize upon meeting you know sorry for what my ancestors did uh, whereas you, you know the the Cold War or the East Germany experience, not so much. It was kind of like, that's done. Let's never talk about it again, which reminded him a lot of Ireland, where we like to think we reckon with history, but we just go on about it and we do, don't actually do anything about it. <laughs> yes. And one of the ways we've sort of buried it is by saying we've othered the state and the church. So mm. it's these foreign entities, like almost a different uh, genetic species that must have forced all these horrible thoughts upon us and, yeah, uh, and, what and kind created of people all these laundries that secretly doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I never had a conversation uh, like I did with my mum before until that report came out. I read Toronto and I was reading all the, the commentary, which is a grim thing to do in January, February um, in level five. <laughs> but that's just where my head sometimes goes. And she was, she left school, you know, before the intersearch. So she's gone out of school by 15. But she remembers uh, like one or two girls literally disappearing from the year ahead of her. So they probably were like, you know, 16. Wow. And everybody knew, she said, as kids, we knew they had had a baby and uh, that we were just never going to see her again. Wow. And we'd never hear from her again. And no one would mention her again. And I was going like, if 15 year old girls who, who have never been taught anything about sex or know anything, they know that stuff, then all of society knows it. And um, I just think there's enormous complicity. And that's the reason we just will not confront this history. This is my very long and very dark way of saying that, you know, this is the show we said, you know, let's ignore all those documentaries that sometimes look at figures of history in isolation and go, actually, De Valera did some wonderful things along with all this other terrible stuff. And Sean Lamass is a statesman and Jack Lynch was actually a very decent fellow in the end. Because you have to put the context, like, they know all of this shit was going on. Yeah, They're like part at the very top of it. And mm. they do nothing or, or they, they do absolutely, you know, nothing about any of it. Even Gareth Fitzgerald uh, in the 80s, who describes himself, you know, infamously along the way of his political career as a kind of a male feminist, you know, that all continues on under his era. Now, he, he, if he was alive, might say, you know, there was damn all I could do because the power was in the church and state. But there's not even a speech. There's nothing like, there isn't even a, a, reference. a single yeah. Yeah, reference to any of it going on. Uh, this huge thing that everybody knows is happening. So we were, were able to kind of do this sort of revision of history through the only way we can cope with it in Ireland, which is to take the piss out of it. Well, there you <laughs> go. I mean, that, like, that's what I wanted to ask next. The manner in which you pursue comedy, like the way you, the horse you ride towards that destination is impressions and mimicry, whatever way you want to call it. But the question I wanted to ask is, why is this such a popular way 
for Irish people to <laughs> laugh at themselves. Yeah, it's it's cracked. I mean, to establish how popular it is, when I, I would say I started my career properly really um, around 2012, 2013, because I had kind of done a lot of sh- really terrible stuff before that, a thing called Knob Nations on the Jerry Ryan show, didn't know what I was doing, really badly managed and advised and everything. So it was just like awful stuff that I wish I could just delete from the mainframe forever. But anyway, whoa, whoa, sometimes hold you get... the phone there, because that stuff was really popular. I think it's crazy when I read that you wanted to delete it. Yeah, I mean, like, it might have been popular at the time, but I'd say if you listened or found any, <laughs> you'd kind of go, oh, yeah, this is shite. Um, <laughs> like, I really had no idea what I was doing. And, um, like, it just was, it just wasn't, when I look back, at it, it just wasn't me. It just wasn't okay. what I was doing. I mean, and also around that time, uh, like, impressionists were huge in Ireland. Like, Mario Rosenstein, mm. massive star, still is, obviously, but had been well established and really is his heyday because you've got the kind of Roy Keane having his uh, massive meltdowns that everyone's obsessed with everything that's going on because he was very much, you know, very heavily focused on the premiership and football and so on, as were Apre Match, which is a huge institution. And the Savage Eye was doing a lot of stuff, which is based, you know, mostly, more or less based on mimicry, even though he created a lot of, lots of fun uh, fictional characters as well. So I had to really find sort of a niche that no one else was doing uh, with, with much care or attention. And that was politics for me. And I was a journalist for a couple of years on radio. That's where I kind of started doing Gift Grub. And my first character in Gift Grub, uh, which is Mary Rosenstock's show on Today FM, was um, Enda Kenny. Because um, he wasn't doing uh, end at the time and trying to find characters that Mario wasn't doing was sort of the, the challenge. And uh, Brian Dobson, who was the kind of a cynical newsreader that we sort of invented a, um, a persona <laughs> for. And uh, so I kind of had to find the niche in order to to get through, you know, this uh, avalanche of impressions that are that were going on at the time. And they were all over TV and radio and so on. So politics is the thing that fell. And I knew it would be kind of a lonely for, for a long time. And you're never going to be like, you're never going to sell out the three arena being a political satirist. But uh, it's a slow, steady burn. And, you know, uh, it, the opportunity just came out, out by accident that Radio One, because I was on 2FM for quite a bit, uh, wanted to do something in this vein. And that's when I pitched it. And, and Callan's Kicks came about in 2013. And um, radio is a bizarre one because you won't become huge through radio and the, the audience the audience is extremely loyal. When you get them, you really have them for the long term. Whereas TV, you can just burn really quickly, burn out really quickly, or you can sink and disappear totally. You're wiped out if you do a bad series. Yeah, I feel uh, like so I interrupted kind of you, nice though. Slow. I feel like I interrupted your train of thought there because I was asking you, why is this, though? Like, why is it this way? Like, I feel like having, you know, a degree of experience trying to make Irish people laugh the impact of a brilliant dead on impersonation like in so many ways you need to say very little to get an awful lot you know i wouldn't ever accuse you of doing that but i've seen we we both know people that can do the voice (laughs) and there's not much underneath yeah, but they're still making much. a fine living for themselves and I wouldn't ever <laughs> never fault them for it <laughs> but you start you got on stage at Daphne and Nesbitt's at the age of 16 for Kenny Live a, sh- a contest that they had run is this correct were you yeah, doing that's, impressions that's, then that's true yeah I mean um, I was in school so um I'm in school in Monaghan, uh, growing up on a farm. So, uh, like, I was, I had a fascination with Dermot Morgan, particularly during the Father Ted years when, like, obviously Father Ted was amazing and it was really good for us as teenagers watching it on Channel 4. But mm. I was always kind of telling people at school, oh, no, Dermot Morgan is 
also so much more than just the, the actor playing this priest. You know, you need to listen to the Scrap Saturday tapes, which, you know, uh, in the mid 90s were had already been buried just five years by uh, the, the, the infamous stories of the government instructed RT to cancel it yes. after I think only two seasons in the end. I think Insane. it only lasted two years. It's just great. And his just um, his caricature impression of Charlie High just goes from tiny nuance to, oh, my God, it's exactly him to, you know, the grotesque monster <laughs> version of him where Charlie just uh, believes he's entirely Ireland and uh, believes he's related to everyone and uh, connected to all these incredible moments in history that have led to him obviously becoming the spiritual leader of all of Europe. And, um, you know, it's just amazing how lucky that Dermot Morgan and Charlie High existed in the same era and clashed mm. like they did. Where am I going? So the question kind of is, you know, why does impressions have such an impact? I think because we're a small country and we have the the kind of either luck or misfortune as a small country, I would say, look, that we speak like a global language of English. That is the one thing the Brits gave us along with, with the system of governments and democracy. Anyway, <laughs> the, the English language, which means that we have a global presence that people know of our in terms of our brand and the brand of the people and the character of the people. So we have an entire inferiority complex. All we are obsessed with is what do other people think of us? And so we always wonder, what do they think of us? And how, you know, when people, when we make fun of ourselves, it's like, oh, we're holding a mirror up as in this is how the world sees us. Isn't it hilarious? And so I think impressions is you're kind of unlocking little mysteries because when you do an impression, you're finding a tick or something distinguishable in their characteristic or their voice or their demeanor and you're highlighting it and showing it to everyone else and everyone and, and there's a click of familiarity and everyone goes oh my god yes that person does that and they do seem like they say that and yeah. uh, that seems exactly the way it is uh, and um we're kind of laughing at it because we have the ability sometimes to laugh at ourselves but only among ourselves we think we're able to laugh at ourselves until someone else makes fun of us and i think that's also the same for for various impressions and i think sometimes my impressions work best when i've invented something that someone doesn't actually do but it just seems like they do <laughs> like michael martin doesn't start with uh, like he doesn't like stammer at all, at all actually but it just seems like he does because it kind of He's seen as a kind of a watery figure, indecisive, always has to commission those reports. And that sound just that actually feels like yeah. what he is. Uh, and we also and know Michael people with also, that voice who do yes, that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Michael D. Higgins, who doesn't do <coughs> every now and again. But that's kind of tells us like this beloved man, everyone kind of knows he, we really love him and we're glad that he represents us, but there's just something really pompous about this man <laughs> and his little, <laughs> excuse me, I'm speaking is the sort of, you know, is what that kind of that sound does. Yeah. There's, a, there's a whole orchestra of sounds in everyone's voice. So, so um, you know, this is, this is like such a, a, a wide quality, the ability to do, what you do and to observe in that way that like is so diminished in some quarters and then, you know, given Oscars in others. <laughs> it's I mean, weird. Isn't it? It's it really incredible. Is, yeah, yeah. Like the way it's looked down upon by some people. 
And yeah, yet, it is. It's really seen as a very cheap form of comedy, isn't it? But but there's so there's still the exact same tools at play as you know Ramani Malik getting a, you know his, his Freddie Mercury <laughs> Oscar, uh, or, or they could give it to the Oscar, or they give the Oscar to the guy who actually sang. Which Ramani Malik uh, lip syncs to in the film, and you're going, hang on a second, this is there's a Canadian um, music impressionist who does all the singing in the film. Yes. And uh, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, carrying, <laughs> also you, you know, carrying, a, doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> to yeah, put I mean, it also mildly. you get someone like Freddie Mercury is famously tall. He towers over pretty much everyone in Queen, and they're pretty tall. You know, well, Brian Hare kept making his hair taller to make him seem taller. <laughs> and um, oh god, you are going to regret bringing up that film because I really hated that film. <laughs> it's so much. shocking. It, I really hated it, and but, it, uh, it became like the big. I remember getting really angry because it was the most. Um, it, it was the biggest box office figures in Ireland that year, and obviously. He won everything and everyone seemed to love it but um uh, sorry so he, like they paid they got this tiny man to play this enormous enormously tall charismatic <laughs> you know, singer one of the greatest of all time yeah. and also portray him as someone who's really like hates being gay <laughs> in the film you know it's like the most he was the most proud gay man that practically existed albeit not so publicly uh, although like he was left guessing in the end Yet they're like, it's just, it's the Roger May version of Queen. And it's like, he even puts the embarrassing scene where he's like, no, look, I came up with We Will oh, Rock You. Look, oh, at, I'm doing this. Stop the film. Awful. It's me. Oh, like, I, and they, I, even, I, they even falsely say that Freddie Mercury went off and did the solo albums first, which is completely like Roger May was. Uh, uh, sorry, I keep calling him uh, Roger May. Oh, I I hate know, it. Like, it is just Brian revisionist May. history. I don't hate the man so much. I just hate that film he did. <laughs> Right, well, we've got that. He's we we can all agree just, upon that. And you can send your emails to irishmetabroadpodcast at gmail.com if you disagree. And we'll deal with that an, at another time. But what I was, where I was going with this is that the ability to do that, to uh, see the person the way they are maybe not seeing themselves isn't just down to having, you know, flexible vocal cords that can, you know, hit these different ranges, although that is part of it. You discover that you have that ability, the vocal end of it in school, when you can do more (laughs) than just the walk of the teacher. Like I can remember Michael Hartnett perfectly in the Patrician Brothers in Newbridge, uh, embodying (laughs) a teacher's walk in the door and that was enough he didn't need to say any words <laughs> and it kind of almost strips the power of the teacher away in a, way, in a, in a bit oh, doesn't it because it's magical you you yeah. had that experience tell us about those first impressions and which teachers you were doing as the buzz off that is so high that you were essentially chasing it for the rest of your life yeah, I mean, they're in sco- you're in schools. They kind of almost like the TV presenters in your life. So they're up there the whole time or the leaders and politicians. They kind of become, <laughs> become those kind of figures. So you're watching them and they always they the reason I say they're leaders are like TV presenters is because they have a classroom uh, persona that they switch on. Because, as you know, in later years, if you ever meet them and you're still calling them by their last name, you kind of go, oh, I've just remembered you're also a human who had a family and a life outside of the classroom. But to us as kids, you were just they, they hate they hated authorities. So we needed to strip you down. And uh, lampooning is always the way 
that they've done it for centuries, you know, where mm. for the minute someone was able to draw a picture and circulate it around large groups of people in the public sphere going back centuries and then they started printing it. It was always just sending up and because it strips away their power mm. uh, is why probably impressionists and satirists have suffered so much over the over history. So, yeah, doing that uh, and particularly someone who is, uh, you know, I was awkward and shy as many comedians are growing up so you don't have to be yourself so you can stick on this mask and it's like one that is 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 a common enemy of everyone who is the school teacher even the ones that we liked also even got lampooned and it kind of gave me this foil uh, like it gave me this um protection against being bullied for all of school because you're the guy who does the voices and you can just switch it on whenever <laughs> you ever need to get out of anything and were you bullied and prior to the voices not no, actually, because it's probably because I was quiet and pretty good at um, slipping into the shadows, as it were. Mm. So no, and a lot of teachers also thought it was pretty cool because obviously, as you realise, the politics of the teacher's room is more um, interesting than the politics of the class, the student, and the teacher. So sometimes you'd have a lazy sort of a Friday, and the the odd physics teacher, Eamon Dunn, would stick me up and go, "Go on, do your impressions of, you know, all the teachers." And they all knew their nicknames, you know, but <laughs> it was Slappy, or um, you know, there was even a teacher called. There was a teacher called FUB for a while, which was an acronym, F-U-B, for Fat Ugly Bastard. Oh, my God. Yeah, which just shows how horrific and evil t- teenage boys put into it. This is why schools need to be mixed. And uh, this is this is only the 90s, by the way, you know. And uh, that was only pretty horrible. And there was a guy who had a very distinctive way of kind of pouting. And he was called Trout because it was quite a fish-like uh, pout. And he didn't seem to mind at all. Slappy was the guy who, um, I think, it, because some of them were older generation teachers who were still in the uh, pre-Patrician uh, Brothers, it was a Patrician Brothers school and there might have been the odd slaps going around, but I think it was probably just because he was bald, I would imagine. That's <laughs> the main reason, and he had a great way of doing it. So you, you remember those voices, you can still do those voices. Yeah. yeah, there was a teacher called Bruce, which wasn't his name, I don't know why he was called Bruce. But I remember those voices, yeah, and they were just, just the... There was power in them because you could, like I say, you were able to protect yourself from bullying. You could pare down the the figures of authority down to size and off you go. Well, the difference as I look back on it was versus what you're doing now with this series and with your previous like massive success and, you know, stage shows is that when you're there in that setting, the cage rattling wasn't good. I mean, your physics teacher wouldn't have asked you up <laughs> if he knew he's going to say something so controversial here. <laughs> he's going to reference something that none of us want referenced. I know. And because my schoolyard antics then, as I got into kind of transition year and fifth year in school, said, you know, you better do this in the um, school concerts, which were these um, really ramshackle right. things we did, which, we, which were like, practically a mile away from school because there was no facilities in school. We wanted to be locked out at lunchtime because there was no assembly hall or anything. Suddenly it was like, you're going to do this on stage and there'll be parents and teachers there. So you're not allowed to do this teacher and this teacher and this teacher because they're sensitive about it. And that was kind of the early experience of, oh, so I won't be able to just do whatever I wanted. Yeah, the first experience of censorship <laughs> yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah. But I wondered if you were you... Well, you've probably answered it there that, you know, you have to write some of this, Oliver, with the view that if I'm not getting in trouble, I'm not doing it right. Or am I yeah, wrong on that? 
Yeah, no, there's absolutely a lot of that. But there was a part of me as well, even as a kid, sort of realised, yeah, that that teacher is actually being bullied by the entire classroom at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some teachers who'd lost control. And you, uh, you f- we start to feel really sorry for them. And uh, you be the kind of nerdy kids who just want to get along. And, the, you know, there's st- like stuff being thrown at teachers and stuff. It was horrific. Mm-hmm. And if you sort of suddenly start talking to your friends because there was just chaos in the room, you'd get in more trouble from them than anyone because you, you know that felt like the last people who were listening were now gone yeah so you kind of had to understand oh yeah there's that there are humans here you're dealing with and um there's a part of me over the years have thought it would be so easy just to be a stand-up and just do uh, self-deprecating humor talk about myself or just invent characters and types that you can make fun of and i'd be free of this awful curse of real people their feelings in a small country and uh, not to mention the defamation rules and so on um <laughs> But you know what? You just you just you plunder on. I've never seen it. Like I've never seen that I've had big success or anything. I wouldn't call it because you know, I still uh, am very confined to, you know, an, a niche part of, a, of 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 the landscape in a small country. Uh, and because we have because we've seen so many people make it so huge in, in places where you are now and in America and so on. You always kind of go, no, they're they're really big, mm. and um, you know you, you probably would have had to move away from that. And like I'm forty now, and I always think, well, maybe happiness is the thing that kind of uh, happily keeps me from from going <laughs> from getting any bigger than this. And I'm absolutely fine with that. Well, Whereas, uh, like in in the, your late twenties, early thirties, you're kind of foaming at the mouth, going, when will I make it? When will it happen? <laughs> so that so that was a thought was that you know did you think uh, like I guess you say you are directly associated with back home and it's why you know so many listeners to this show will like seek out their Callan kicks will like have it sent to them have somebody you know send the file if they can't get it on the RTE player that you're so connected to Ireland but yeah. you, you did have a dream to extend out further did you? I wouldn't even call it a dream. I'd say it was like a desperation <laughs> of going, I can do this, this, I sh- should I be doing it? And people go, oh, you should make it now in England. You know, you should go and do the English thing, particularly because it's quite a good, you know, legacy of impressions mm-hmm. and people doing very well for themselves out of impressions in England. Now, it's also notable that someone like Steve Coogan, who started out as an impressionist, kind of tends to veer away from it, ultimately started creating his characters and uh, making it big on different terms. And it's almost like afterwards, you kind of go, oh, by the way, you know, this guy is an amazing impressionist. So you kind of go, oh, my, should I be doing that? But, then, you know, I was just so hooked on politics here. Yeah. And by the time I'm kind of up and running at it, you know, and I'm getting to a stage in life where, you know, uh, and stuff starts to happen when you least care about it, when you're least desperate looking for it. It just almost happens by accident. It's like, will you do this now? And we go, oh, yeah, might as well. Sure. You know, I'm in the business at this stage. I mean, I wouldn't say like I'm, I'm zero ambition, but um, even just the kind of because you really have to if you want to make it in, over, in, in England in particular, you've got to f- fully go over there like all the comedians have, whether it's Dylan Moore and Daryl Breen, Ed Byrne, all these people have gone over there, you know. The, and then there's the exceptional ones like Tommy Tiernan who will just um, who just who just get there through his sheer force of being Tommy yeah. Tiernan. <laughs> yeah, true enough. Uh, yeah, they, they, but he is like the sort of. Uh, I mean, we don't really have this, the mad literary greats who are also performers like the sort of Brendan Behans and people who are known for their character. And I always think he kind of fits into that, you know, exceptional vein of there's going to be a handful of people who's going to smash through. 
So there you have it, the first half of my interview with Oliver Callan. And there's an awful lot more, as I said, for you to enjoy in the second half, including that really difficult time in his career where he essentially lost everything and that Paul Galvin incident explained in full for the first time. I also get into how he creates his impressions. I mean, the final 15 minutes is some of the funniest stuff as we talk about the late Marion Finucane and her response to having Oliver do her to her face. I love this chat and the second half of it is really where things go up a notch so come on over to patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad today sign up for a fiver and you get access to as i said extra large versions of all of our episodes a huge archive hundreds and hundreds of episodes with the greatest irish people ever to have lived if you do have a passion for irish history this isn't a, a bad thing to have at your fingertips callan kicks is on your, your TVs this week. You can you can get access to it if you're in Ireland on the RTE player. I'm just pulling it up here. It's a hell of a show. I got to see episode one and uh, it really doesn't disappoint. The man is just a Trojan worker. I can't get over the amount that's in this series. So uh, go to the RTE player and get it or get someone to send over a DVD or a VHS tape to you in Australia because you won't regret it but again to hear the rest of my conversation with Oliver there's only one place to hear it it's patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad we'd love if you came over to support the show and hear more of the show I'll be back on Tuesday with Sonia O'Sullivan of course Marion next Friday apologies again to anybody who planned to travel to those Laughter Lounge shows on Friday and Saturday or to come to the run the Phoenix Park on Sunday Sonia and I have a big plan for April we will reveal that very very soon Brian Connolly's on sound John Marr does the extra research Tina and Mikey make it all possible and our patrons over on Patreon are the reason our show is still going